Hey, Rachel, why is the dining room table covered in back issues? Oh, hey, Miles. I was just trying to figure out what's up with Angel. Uh, Main Angel or Kid Angel? Or the one who has bug wings and spits acid? No, no, Main Angel. So he was getting taken over by Apocalypse, so Psylocke had to stab him in the brain with her psychic knife and basically destroyed his entire memory and personality. Now he thinks he's a real angel. Well, okay, so I'll buy that the Tabula Rasa base of Warren Worthington is both optimistic and self-important enough to actually assume he's an angel. True. But he still is Archangel, right? I mean, he can shoot metal blades from his wings. Of course. Well, shouldn't he be blue then? I mean, Apocalypse turned him blue at the same time he installed the metal wings. I I remember this. He turned back when his healing powers activated. And the metal wings that shoot neurotoxin-laced blades still don't shake his belief that he's a real angel? I mean, that's pretty non-angelic. Well, they look feathery most of the time, even if it's just techno-organic. And there's his blood. His blood. Oh yeah, it can heal people. And, you know, kill demons. What?! Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes, back from C2E2. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the fourth episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. This week, we're going to be wrapping up our Silver Age coverage with a look at three alternate takes on that era, but first, we have an announcement. So, after episode two, we decided that Magneto made some valid points. T-shirts needed to be a thing. So we commissioned designer Dylan Todd to make that dream a reality. You can now buy those, along with Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men t-shirts and stickers, in our brand new store, and that's at rachelandmiles.redbubble.com, or you can just click the store link at the top of our page. Now, in an ideal world, this is eventually going to pay for things like hosting and the ridiculous volume of back issues we're going to have to track down as we proceed. But if we're going to be actually honest, it's mostly just a way for us to get more rad X-Men t-shirts, and now you can too. So speaking of back issues, uh, we've been doing the Silver Age for the first two episodes last, uh, last week's animated series one notwithstanding. And this is going to be our last Silver Age episode. Um, Now, those of you familiar with the Silver Age will be saying, but you missed so much. And there's actually a reason that we're skipping what we are. Basically, there are two kinds of Silver Age stories. There are ones that are directly pertinent to upcoming stuff. And there are ones that are kind of throwaways. And of the first group, the vast, vast majority basically get recovered in the next era of X-Men when they come up. They're referred back to a lot and with a lot of context. Yeah, we actually, when we were starting the podcast, we went back and forth on whether to do the Silver Age for that reason. We decided to go for it, because there's a lot of yellow-clad ridiculousness that we did want to talk about, but uh, it's sort of optional when you get down to it. And we're going to go back to the things that are important that we missed as they come up as central to larger later stories. So we'll be doing some flashbacks to the Silver Age, but for the most part, we're going to be shelving it after this episode. So um, if you do want to be a completist and just check out every little thing that happens in Silver Age X-Men, there's a guy named Paul O'Brien, and he's got this old archival site uh, called the X-Axis. Which is awesome. It is awesome, and it goes through every single issue. It it sums up the plot a bit. It talks about, you know, what's 60s and ridiculous about it. Uh, We'll post a link to that on our blog. And, I mean, credit where due, in a lot of ways, we're both big fans of this site. We were reading it as it was coming out. And I think, at least for me, it's a lot of where... The idea and the tone of, you know, really just getting in and explaining the X-Men came from. Highly recommended. If you like this podcast, you'll love his archives. Also, uh, mea culpa, we we totally cheated and didn't read a couple issues and just looked at his summaries. Yeah, they're that good. <laughs> so, okay, um, we are going to talk, uh, like we were saying before, about a few alternate takes on the Silver Age. Now, a handful of you, when, when you found out we were doing this, asked if we were going to be covering the Marvels. And the answer is no. Now, Marvels is fantastic. It's a series by Kurt Busiek. There have been, um, I think, two miniseries. They are both way worth reading. Um, 
They're basically an alternate man-on-the-street view of the Silver Age. They're fantastic. However, they focus on the Silver Age in general. And while that's really cool, uh, if we were trying to explain the Marvel Universe, this podcast would last until the sun burned itself out. We're just talking about X-Men. And there's some X-Men stuff in there, but it's really not the focus. Well, and there are also three either series or standalone graphic novel retellings of just Silver Age X-Men. We have a one-hour recording slot. We try to keep this podcast to a length that you can listen to on a lunch break, and ultimately, there's going to be some stuff that falls into supplemental reading. Marvel's is going to be one of those, but you should definitely track it down and read it. Absolutely. So, I guess we might as well uh, dive right in. Uh, What's the first series we're going to talk about? The first series we're going to talk about, we're going to go chronologically, is Children of the Atom. Children of the Atom was a six-issue miniseries that came out in 1999. It was written by Joe Casey. The first three issues were drawn by Steve Rude, and then there were different artists for the other three. So what Children of the Atom covers is basically the stuff that happens before X-Men number one. It's about Xavier starting the school. It's about him meeting up with the various students who are going to be the five original X-Men. It's about a really weird villain in a really dark timeline that doesn't really jive with the main Marvel Universe, especially the Silver Age. And we're going to get to more of that. I mean, it's basically American history X-Men. Uh, I love that. Um, it's If you're familiar with The Dark Knight Returns, which I suspect most people listening to this podcast are, it feels a lot like that. It's that kind of like uber dark, uber gritty uh, kind of feel that, you know, from what you've been hearing us talk about the Silver Age of X-Men, that's really not what it was about. I want to go back a step, too, and um, point out that the stories you mentioned, it's before the X-Men starts, but it's a fairly direct rehash of a lot of the backstories that were backups in Silver Age issues. Uh, right. So, like, we find out that, uh, and we'll get to this a little bit more later, but that Cyclops was working for a thief who took him in after he was in the orphanage named Jack of Diamonds, and just little weird things like that that are canonical, but don't really feel as X-Men as they might. So, um, yeah, I guess let's let's go ahead and dive into Children of the Atom. So um, we have a couple characters in Children of the Atom that don't really appear uh, at all or as much in mainstream X-Men. Um, first of all, we have FBI agent Fred Duncan. Now, he's in the Silver Age. He doesn't really do a lot. Uh, it kind of seemed like Stan Lee liked the idea of him when he was writing and Roy Thomas. But he's also occasionally named Amos in the Silver Age. I, you know, I, I mean, who isn't? Back in the 60s, that's what everyone was calling me. That skeptical look, listeners, you can't you can't see it, but trust me, it's there. Oh, they can hear it. <laughs> They're smart. They know. So yeah, Fred Duncan, we don't exactly have a focal point of view character in Children of the Atom, but the book opens basically with him and it keeps coming back to him. He keeps talking on this uh, handheld recorder to somebody named uh, Ben, I want to say. Um, basically, it's Dale Cooper and Diane from Twin Peaks, but much less charming and interesting. Which brings up an important point. Uh, Children of the Atom is really era nebulous. Um, it was it was published in 1999. Visually, it looks like it's set sometime between maybe like 1986 and 1992. It's it's very very neon 80s fashiony. Um, you know, visually and also also language wise, um, artistically, it looks like a comic that would have come out in the early to mid 80s, just in terms of the storytelling conceits and a lot of a lot of the genre considerations and things that were trendy. And so it, it's really it makes it very, very difficult to place. Yeah. And you have a lot of cultural references that uh, both place it and also really date it. Like one of my favorite weird little things is there. This series really plays a pantomime Eden hysteria. That's what it's about, by and large. And at one point. Uh, there's some talk show, and they have this graphic talking about how, you know, what other people might be mutants. And it's got this picture, the silhouette of a woman who is very clearly supposed to be Monica Lewinsky hovering over the White House with glowing red eyes, which I, I, I sort of blinked at that and had to read that panel a couple times over again to make sure I was really reading what I was reading. 
Um, Mulder and Scully also show up a lot. Um, again, it's in it's in the FBI. It's very aware that's in the FBI. So there are there are Twin Peaks references and there are X Files references. And Mulder and Scully are basically in the background of like every third panel. As a huge X Files fan, I am never going to object to Mulder and Scully showing up in different universes as long as they don't start you know talking well, you and know, making the, no sense. The X Men is part of the Tommy Westfall universe. I'm pretty sure I exist in the Tommy Westfall universe. I'm only a dream. Well, no, no, I'm serious because um, in X Factor at one point, Val Cooper, who's who's their government liaison, mentions her brother Dale, who's an FBI agent, who's dealing with some case where they found a girl um, out in Oregon wrapped a, a dead girl wrapped in plastic. That's really not very ambiguous at all, is it? No, and the best part is that around the same era, the New Mutants are talking about watching T- Twin Peaks on TV. Wait, so a thing's going on, and there's also a show about the thing that's going on? Yeah. Oh man, this is blowing my what mind. What that tells me is that in Marvel, Twin Peaks is a reality series. I love this plan, but I think we're tangenting a lot. So let's uh, let's get back to circle around to where we were. So, Children of the Atom cultural references, right? Um, Speaking of tangents, <laughs> yes. So it's uh yeah, it's set in this really weird like late eighties ish thing. But what it feels like, like I like I was saying, is um it feels a lot like the Dark Knight Returns. Things are just so ridiculously dark and not okay. There's this uh, there's this guy named uh, Metzger, I believe. And he is, um, we're going to come back to roles like him when we talk about William Stryker, who's in my favorite X-Men story, God Loves, Man Kills. You know, compared to Metzger, Stryker is downright subtle. Right. So Metzger, his whole thing, he's kind of like our glorious anthropologist, uh, Bolivar Trask, we were talking about in episode two, except that he's really more like a neo-Nazi youth rally kind of guy. Okay, this guy is literally designed as a cross between Hitler and Stalin. He's got the tiny mustache. He dresses in a uniform. He's always at a desk with banners behind it. He runs rallies. He uses phrases like the final solution. And then the FBI, like knowing all of this, this is this is his presence, hires him as a consultant. And it's like, what what were they even thinking? Okay, so it reminds me of this old kids in the hall sketch um, where this person's accepting an award. Uh, it's, I think it's a, a woman who's actually one of the actors in drag. And she's like, I'd like to thank my mom and my dad and Hitler and my teacher and my brother. And uh, the really- ex- I can't believe you thanked Hitler. Yeah, I, I didn't thank Hitler. You, you thanked Hitler. Did I thank Hitler? And it's basically just like that, except... Why would you hire Hitler? Yeah, I can't believe you hired Hitler. You know, really, FBI? Really? So, yeah, we have Fred Duncan, who's uh, the guy we mentioned before. He's been working with a, a Charles Xavier, who at this point doesn't have a school, doesn't have students. He's just sort of this mutant activist. He's, he knows, a, he's a mutant. He's a creep. Oh, my God. He's actually, as much as we've been talking about Professor Xavier being a jerk in the mainstream Silver Age, he's, like, way more hostile and harsh in this. He is horrifying. So... You mentioned this being really noir, and you mentioned specifically the Frank Miller um, references. And this, this is—I want to make it clear how overt these are. Like they—they they use the television screen caption, full-page layouts that are, are very, very, very evocative of *The Dark Knight Returns*. There are panels that that basically pull f- directly from Miller's sort of noir office framings. Um, but in general, it gives the impression of a comic that's not really sure what genre it's trying to be because it's a superhero story it's trying to make it more realistic but it's trying to make it more realistic via a formula that's like the super dark gritty entirely unrealistic in another direction thing right and so it's i think the main thing that we we as we were talking about children of the atom with each other came to is that it really doesn't feel like X-Men, as much as it does do some things right. And I'd actually like to talk about the things that it does right. Well, the Steve Rude covers, first of all, it's only the first four issues, but they are stunning. Steve Rude is a great artist, but um, what he is just, I, I mean, his, his interiors are very good. 
his covers are and I, I this is a word I try not to use a ton because it gets so overused, but his covers are are legitimately iconic. Like he is he is one of the all time great cover artists and he is at the top of his game in this series. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, one of the one of the things that I think is interesting is the uh, the take on the main characters on our original five X-Men and Xavier and Magneto, mm-hmm. who really are the only Silver Age characters you ever need to look at. Well, Xavier X-Men. looks really scary like he is always in shadow. He's got he his eyebrows, which are are extreme even under the best of circumstances. Like look outright demonic in this series. I, I don't want to get too close to those eyebrows. I'm afraid those eyebrows will cut you, man. They are knife eyebrows. <laughs> that's knife a, brows. That's a secondary mutation. Ooh, um, but into uh, it. but yeah. So the, the takes on the characters, it's interesting. It's very different, and I'd like to kind of go through how they're portrayed. So Xavier, we mentioned, he's a lot more aggressive, but in a way, like I kind of buy it. This is really before he mellows out by taking care of a bunch of teenagers. He's you know, he'll, if uh, when Scott tries to run away at some point, not wanting to deal with being a mutant, Xavier's like, you can't run away forever, like really just confronting him. And we should say that the premise of this is that Xavier, it's sort of the, it's the getting the band together story. And um, Xavier is doing this by conning his way into a job as the guidance counselor at the really crappy inner city high school that by um, astonishing coincidence, uh, Bobby and Scott and Hank all go to. Right. They all go there, um, as do basically the anti-mutant Aryan nation. Who are, again, and speaking of references and not being sure what genre, these guys are straight out of American History X. Uh, Yeah, like it's, I mean... Like they have that dance party, they have those headquarters, and they are basically those characters. Like there's even the slightly punk bitchy girl. Right, and so they go to all these rallies, which are also kind of raves. Oh, I'm sorry. So one of the things that the Silver Age always did was that uh, it wrote teenager dialogue terribly. And Joe totally Casey is too. in that. Joe Casey is continuing the 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 Stanley tradition of having no idea how human teenagers speak. Right. So like at one point, one of the neo Nazi youth characters is like, "Let's let's go and hit up a rave up a rave up." Is that different than a rave? I'm, I. It's pretty wonderful. Yebo. Yebo. Yes, we'll come back to that. Uh, again and again. Um, so yeah, we have we have As our we five should. we have our five X Men, and I kind of like how some of them are portrayed. Like it's a very different take. So for instance, Angel, who's probably the least well defined of the original X Men, at least during the Silver Age. He's kind of got this Batman thing going on. Like he's going around as uh, as a superhero, basically stopping crimes, which is which is indeed canonical. But then he like you know uh, heads back to his mansion in the middle of the night and just broods a lot. And he's a, he's a millionaire playboy by day. Like uh, no, that's up actually Batman. his ba- that's his origin story in the original comics too. He was a he was a superhero called the Avenging uh, the Avenging Angel, and he was he was kind of a crap superhero. And Xavier got him out of out of some or other pickle and invited him to come join the X Men. Right, and that's one of the things that I think makes the the tonal shifting of Children of the Atom interesting. Is you have like Angel as Batman, but then you have, for instance, um, Scott Summers, who I really like the way he's drawn in Children of the Atom. He's very like lanky. He's got terrible posture. He always looks like he's trying to pull himself inward. One of the interesting things about that is that even though so Root is a very tends to be a very realistic cartoonist, but the way he exaggerates. Um, features is is very traditionally cartoony so you've got villain coded faces and hero coded faces and of the original x-men um all of them are hero coded except for cyclops who's actually who looks like one of the villains yeah and what's going on with cyclops at this point is so he's um he's gotten out of the orphanage that he was in after his parents got killed in the plane crash and you better believe we're going to come back to the insanely tangled uh, nature of that orphanage later on um, but yeah, so now he's basically living with this like this criminal, this sort of thief named uh, named Jack, who used who to go looks to Jack exactly of like Richard Nixon. You'd think that would include Scott. It's amazing. Like he looks do? exactly this. God, this comic, this comic 
book is amazing. There are some choices in it that I really don't understand, and that's one of them. Well, anyway, but yeah, and you know, it's it's straight up, and like he is being severely physically abused by this guy who's basically using his powers for these robberies that he's doing. And so Scott, he's you know he's a battered child. He's got these powers that he can't reveal to anyone, and if he ever takes his glasses off, he'll hurt everyone around him. I think one of the things the comic does really well is capture how terrible that's got to be because he is by far the most up of the X, most messed up of the X Men in Children of the Atom. And this is one of the things that I think underlines the Xavier as a dick because Charles Xavier basically straight up bullies and blackmails him into then joining the X-Men. Really, all of the X-Men he does this with, except for Jean. She's the, pretty much the only one that comes consensually. No, he makes he makes a deal with Hank that Hank will come if he can beat him at chess. Okay, that's true. And that's Hank true. knows he's a telepath, so that's not quite as disingenuous as the rest. Yeah. And so, yeah, then you have uh, that Cyclops. You have uh, Hank, the Beast, who's uh, going with the sort of big man on campus thing that we've seen in the traditional Silver Age. You know, he's a star football player. One interesting thing in this is he's really playing down his intelligence. Like, he's sort of worried to come off as both smart and brawny, since a lot of people already suspect he's a mutant, and he doesn't want to make it seem like his physical abilities are definitely caused by a mutation. Hank is the one of the original X-Men that I think this book gets the best in one of the definite highlights of it is the way it portrays him. What I like, you mentioned him downplaying his his, his abilities in, in both contexts, is you see someone who's making a very calculated effort to fit in and not rock the boat. Like Hank, all of the characters' intros in this are about, about kids basically struggling to survive. And the way Hank does it is a lot more subtle. And the threat to him is a lot less direct. But you can really see the effort, and you can see what he's doing and how he's compensating very clearly and very organically. Yeah, and it also kind of makes sense because this being an alternate take on the Silver Age, we've mentioned that in the original Silver Age, you just sort of have to take it on Stanley's word that mutants are hated and feared. In this, like, you know, there are mutants getting beaten to death left and right. There are people talking about murdering them on national television. Like, it's really, really intense. And you get the impression that, yeah, if you came out as a mutant in this era, in this world, you pretty much would live for another day or two if you were lucky. Let me find this actual quote, because this is amazing. In any case, Metzger and his anti-mutant militia are a lightning rod for violence and death. Murder is sweeping the country like the latest fad. I don't want to live in that world. Yeah, this is a world, this is like the X-Men meet, I, I don't even know, the Warriors maybe? Uh, the Warriors is much more brightly colored. Than yeah, happy. the Warriors is the Warriors is closer to classic superhero. What's something that's just like everyone has guns? Everyone is just super murdery. I just keep it's, coming back to Dark Knight Returns. I yeah yeah, but Dark Knight Returns is explicitly set in the future, and what's weird in this is that it's basically set in an alternate ten years ago. Now, uh, not all the characters fare as well. So, like Bobby Iceman really doesn't have a lot of personality in yeah, this. Yeah, Bobby is a MacGuffin. Bobby is yeah. There is there is no. Bobby exists briefly to show both that Hank isn't a complete dick and that Hank is super closeted about being a mutant. He protects Bobby at one point from people who are trying to beat him to death in the bathroom. And then chides him for getting caught in there alone. Yeah. And then um, now Jean. Oh, Jean does not Speaking of well. MacGuffins, Jean is a damsel in distress. She has no personality. She doesn't really do anything. She gets kidnapped. She gets rescued. The the rest of the X-Men, the orig- the other four, show up a lot. They have character arcs. She really doesn't. Xavier shows up at her house, and mostly it's him talking to her parents while she's just sort of sitting on the yard playing with her telekinesis, and that's unfortunate. Now, there's a nominal reason for this, which is that Children of the Atom leads up to the beginning of X-Men number one. Um, the very the very ending narration of Children of the Atom is the first couple captions of the first issue of, of Silver Age X-Men. 
And I'm, I'm not going to lie, as mixed as I was on Children of the Atom, that right there, I sort of got a little twinge of, oh, yay, that makes me happy. Except imagine the Silver Age X-Men that, like, that would have led into. Yeah, they, they were surprisingly well adapted, given coming from that. Um, the other character I want to talk about, and really, I guess the last thing in general about Children of the Atom I want to talk about, is Magneto. Because would I ever really not address Magneto when I have the opportunity? I hear you made some good points. <laughs> I heard that, too. Oh, valid ones. Um, so, Magneto is a much less ambiguous, much less sympathetic character in Children of the Atom. Now, he's still got the relationship with Xavier. They meet up at a cafe at one point. There's much less of a contrast personality-wise. I mean, they've still got the ideological contrast, but they're both really evil. I don't know about that but okay they're both really terrifying that's true but magneto like at one point the evil neo-nazis use a machine to make a suit to make like a synthetic human mutant because well that's what you do apparently the other thing they talk the fbi into letting them use like their craziest hyper racist enforcer dude to test the fbi's let's make a souped up human machine why would you do like even if you are the most nutty racist like creepy fbi member what conceivable process? Like, I want to see the paperwork behind this. I'd like to bring it back to, why would you hire Hitler? This FBI, I mean, this is the same organization that gave Fox Mulder a gun and a badge, so their judgment is not so hot. So, yeah, we have we have Magneto, and uh, he is he's just straight up, like, a villain. Like, there's really none of that, oh, I wish it could be another way that there occasionally is. He's like, no, humans are terrible, and not only do I want to rule them, I actually just want to kill them all. And he's such a fun villain. Like, he, Magneto... Making Magneto sympathetic means that he loses some of his scenery chewing, and oh man, does he have it in Children of the Atom. Yeah, so there, there's this one scene um, where the, the you know the base is burning down, the X-Men have just broken Gina out, and there's like the super mutant dude coming after them, and Ma- Magneto confronts him. And uh, I I wish I could do a better Magneto voice. It's been a while since I watched the animated series, but... Don't, don't use the animated series voice. That His accent changes like every episode. Well, okay, point. How pathetic. The unworthy aspires to godhood when gods already walk the earth. You hate us, you, yet you envy us. You want to exterminate us, and would then dare to take our place, as if you actually could. Do you truly think you know power? Allow me to educate you. And then he just kills the guy pretty hard. And then they all go to the rave up? Uh, presumably. But, you know, Magneto as just this incredibly powerful, merciless villain, like... In the world of Children of the Atom, you know, I totally buy that. I think the ambiguity he has in the main Marvel Universe, like, in this one, humans are just terrible for the most part. They'll they'll just beat you to death and laugh a lot. So I, I think that's one of the things Children of the Atom does really well. Like, I totally buy the Magneto in it. So here's the weird thing about all of that. You talk about the world of Children of the Atom, and the overwhelming impression I get reading it is that that world was accidental. You get the feeling, and it was presented and it was marketed as, this is going to be an update of their origins. This is going to be a a realistic take on it. Again, it's anything but it. It overshoots just as far in the other direction. So what's something that works that is more just lighthearted and cartoony and episodic? Segway, segway. Why, thank you for that excellent lead-in, Miles, to X-Men First Class. This is a more recent series. This was written mostly by Jeff Parker. Um, It came out in 2006 and 2007 with some scattered one-shots later and has been collected in, or has mostly been collected in these convenient digest-sized volumes that for reasons that only Marvel understands only basically collect every other issue. Now, I think we should point out before we get into this that X-Men First Class, the comic, and X-Men First Class, the movie, are not the same thing. They share a title. Totally unrelated. X-Men First Class, the movie, is about uh, 60s Xavier and Magneto's star-crossed, extremely homoerotic bromance slash hijinks. 
uh, X Men First Class, the comic, is basically a retelling of a lot of this of a lot of the Silver Age and some of X Men: The Hidden Years, which is a John Byrne series that's meant to bridge the Silver Age and Giant Size X Men Number One. It's episodic. It's fun. It's the original five X Men having cool adventures. So, how is First Class different from Children of the Atom? How's the feel different? Well, first of all, I enjoyed reading it. Ouch. X-Men First Class is really, really fun. I hear from a lot of people who don't like X-Men that the things that they don't like are the soap opera, the really, really heavy, like, make and break, the world is always at stake stuff, Um, the just intense angstiness. And for those folks, for people who are interested in reading X-Books and getting a feel for X-Books, but really want something that's just a lighthearted, episodic, really, really fun, really involved superhero adventure... There is no book I would recommend more highly than X-Men First Class. It captures the central feel and the central tenets of the series, but it it pulls it 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 makes it's it's fun. It makes it a really fun book that's about, you know, the cool, ridiculous, engaging stuff of the area. You get a good feel of the characters, but their dynamics aren't central. What's central is is, you know, the fights and the monsters and the continuity. And it's really great. It's rad. I love it. Yeah, and one of the other things I like that First Class does is whereas Children of the Atom and the next book we'll be talking about, Season 1, are largely just set around the world of the X-Men, First Class, it just, it hops all the hell over the Silver Age. Something that First Class and Season 1 both do is um, break the Jean Grey paradigm, sort of the Jean Grey curse, and they make her a really interesting character. And my favorite issue of First Class is a Jean Grey-centric issue where she's getting increasingly frustrated with the dudes on the team. And uh, Professor X arranges for for basically Sue Storm to take her out for a day and mentor her. That's the Invisible Woman from the Fantastic Four. And those were both characters who were really explicitly marginal in the Silver Age and really explicitly marginal as the girl on the team. And Jeff Parker subverts that absolutely beautifully. Um, I'm not going to give away what happens, but it's it's got a page that like I tear up every time I read it because it just so perfectly nails what it's like being the only woman or the only girl in what's what's expected to be a male default team or group or community and how 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 much higher that makes the stakes of everything you do feel and it's just it's it's fantastic it's a pun intended pun pun not intended pun retroactively intended um (laughs) retcon yeah it's it's fantastic it's it's a lovely issue and it's 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 i think a good a good example of what makes first class great because it ties to the larger marvel universe but it's it's about these teenagers who have superpowers, but they're in a world that has giant monsters and other dimensions and established superhero teams and gods. And that's crazy. And they recognize that. Right. Like what it, what it kind of reminded me of was the Xavier school as Hogwarts. Like, I want to go to that school. I want to be able to have crazy powers and fight monsters and have adventures. That sounds awesome. And like Hogwarts, this Xavier school has an actually pretty sympathetic headmaster. Like this Charles Xavier is still kind of getting the hang of running a school full of teenagers, but he's a lot more sympathetic to them than than the other ones. And you get the feeling that he created the school to serve their best interests rather than to get them to serve his larger agenda, which is the impression that Xavier gives pretty much everywhere else. Yeah, like there's this one scene. Um, it doesn't really, the first class doesn't have a lot of the soap opera stuff, but it does have some good character moments. And there's this one scene where um, Bobby and Hank are off uh, looking for the lizard in the Everglades. And so Scott and Jean. The lizard, the Spider-Man villain? 
Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Dr. Kurt Connors, I believe. Okay. Um, or no, not Bobby and Hank. Um, Warren and Hank. And so Bobby, Scott, and Gene, like, they're at this uh, this beach house just sort of having a vacation, basically. Um, and Xavier, his big floating head's like, hey, Bobby, just remember you're more susceptible to sunburns because you're Iceman and that's how your powers work. He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to head inside. And then uh, telepathic Xavier looks at Scott and he's like, don't say I never did anything for you. So I think that's super creepy. Part of why I think that's really weird and creepy is that I'm I'm used to main continuity Xavier from whom that would be absolutely horrifying. Right. But like in this, I mean, it's like, you know, Scott it's and Jean. It's still a little iffy. Eh, maybe. But they've expressed interest in each other already. It's just Scott doesn't really know how to talk to her. And so Xavier's like, hey, I'm just going to help engineer a situation where you guys can talk one on one. That's creepy. I can see what you're saying. He's their teacher. He's the functionally their guardian. That's creepy. And he's sort of their dad who's getting his children to hook up with each other. Okay, I see your creepy point, but it's I think creepy. it's charming anyway. <laughs> Xavier, the charmingest and creepiest. Um, A series that X-Men First Class actually kind of reminds me of that came out, I think, around the same time or a few years later is an X-Men Power Pack series. Um, the Power Pack are a bunch of, of super-powered kids in the Marvel Universe. And they did. They did a. There was a great four issue miniseries um, that crossed over with X Men, and each each issue featured a different one of the X Men, you know, f- doing stuff stuff alongside the Power Pack. And it was similarly, it it kind of put the Power Pack in that position of being being the kids who were were, on one hand, superheroes, but on the other hand, also kind of in awe of the 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 grown up superheroes of this larger superhero universe, um, and kind of intersecting and coming into contact with them. And it's got a lot of that same lighthearted feel and, and those same sort of really good character windows. So speaking of the characters, uh, let's talk for a few minutes before we move on to the next book about how the characters are handled in first class. How are the original five handled? Well, actually, I'm going to bat this one back to you because the character who is the main point of view character in this one is the one who gets the shortest end of, the, well, second shortest end of the stick in um, Children of the Atom, and that is Iceman, who I know is one of your favorites. I love Iceman. I, I'm, I'm totally an Iceman. Also, maybe a gene. I don't know. It's confusing. But yeah, so Iceman, uh, he's really portrayed in first class as the kid. Like, he's the one with the sort of uh, goofy hair who feels like he's in over his head and doesn't quite understand girls. And On the other hand, he and Hank, his and Hank's friendship is is legit my favorite part of First Class. If you're going to do Silver Age X-Men right, you need to get that friendship right. And Parker nails it. Yeah, and so like the first issue is basically Iceman writing a letter to his parents, who know he's a mutant, they know he's at Xavier's, and he's just sort of describing all that's going on, and just and there's just this feeling of, again, it's like Hogwarts, he's just so excited to be living this insane, wonderful life where his powers are like a good thing, and they they give him the, the, the right, the privilege of, you know, fighting dinosaurs and crazy evil mutants and, and, and stuff like, and, you know, going into mystical dimensions. And so and, you know, at, at the end, he actually freezes and shatters the letter because he says Xavier can't, you know, won't allow him to, to give away too many details. Yeah, but, I mean, his parents don't know that, you know, they're X-Men. Right, just that they're mutants at a school. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so really, I think that fits First Class. First Class, it's it's a really good all-ages series. And so I think uh, Bobby Iceman is an excellent point-of-view character. He really, like, looking at the world through the lens of, of his mind, you just, you, you see it with just this sense of, oh man, superheroes, neat. And again, that's sort of the lens of first class. He's only the narrator for a couple issues, that first one, and then I think there's there's one a bit later. But it really is kind of, the whole series is kind of a Bobby's eye view of the world, it, because it is. It's neat, and it's fun, and it's really it's really warm in a way that, that X-Men, and especially young X-Men stories, don't often get to be. I mean, this is the series, I think, I think a definitive moment. This is the, this is the series, and one of the one-shots that spun out of it, where Cyclops has a solo adventure, that's just silly hijinks. He's fighting Batrock the Leaper. Yes, silly he fights Batrock the Leaper and steals a bicycle and leaves a sweet note. And it's 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 really nice. 
and it's fun and it's completely non-angsty. And that's not a thing that happens in X-Men. So let's talk about the uh, the third alternate retelling of the Silver Age. So this is X-Men season one, and we've we've mentioned this repeatedly as a mutual favorite, which it really is. And honestly, this is my favorite introduction to the X-Men. Um, of all of the media out there, of all of the introductions to the teams, X-Men season one just stands out for me as a beautiful, self-contained, really masterpiece. Yeah, so uh, the season one line was a line that Marvel was doing a few years ago. I think they may still be working on it here and there. But it's basically a bunch of kind of one-shot hardcovers, which are updated versions of the origins of various superheroes and superhero teams. So you have like Spider-Man season one, uh, Daredevil season one, that sort of thing. Um, And so X-Men season one, it's also nice and digestible. Like I read it on a plane ride heading back from Chicago in its entirety with plenty of time to spare. Like this is this is this book is like my equivalent of a security blanket. It's one of my comfort reads. If I'm having a bad day, I'll just curl up with it for an hour because it's it's really nice. It's it is. really good and it's it's yeah, it's really digestible. It's also got a great creative team. I want to, you know, mention that because we don't we don't talk about that a ton, but this is just one of those dream team books. It's um Dennis Hopeless writing. And um this was I think this was the first thing of his that I read. Uh yeah, me too. Um, and Jamie McKelvey, who's who's a mutual favorite artist uh, drawing, he's best known for Phonogram and then more recently for Young Avengers. Um, and he is just, he's really good at teenagers. He's really good at facial expressions. And he's got a, just a very clear, clean style that fits the story absolutely beautifully. Yeah, so uh, season one, um, I mentioned that, we mentioned that Iceman was our sort of point of view character in the first issue of First Class. Uh, Marvel Girl, Jean Grey, is the point of view character for uh, the entire series, and that sets a different tone. Like, with Bobby, you have essentially a kid, like, yeah, he's a teenager, but effectively he's a kid, as your view to the world. And with Jean, you have a teenager who's really just trying to figure out the world, her place in it, who she is, how how to deal with her powers and identity, um, how to deal with boys. There's a a love triangle with her and Cyclops and Angel that I think works really, really well, It kind of turns into a love parallelogram at, at at least one point, too. Yeah, well, you know, these things happen. And it's not even one of those, we're in love with the same girl. It's, we're all teenagers, and we have the communication skills of teenagers. Yeah, and so it's um, a, a lot of it. Now, if you if you are avoiding the soap opera by going for first class, this is where, if you like the soap opera but don't want it to be super, super angsty, you should totally go for it. The plot elements that contribute to soap opera in a lot of X-Men stories in first class are played pretty directly as character building and development. Yeah, that's that's the entire point of, um, of season one is that uh, you, you're you seeing these characters figure things out. And yeah, you see them like on these adventures, but oh, really sorry, those I'm are... I'm at season one back there. I'm oh, yeah. Oh. Um, but really those adventures are just illustrations of like what's going on. So, you know, you're, you're hearing about her and Angel having to learn to communicate and then it cuts to like them tied up in the savage land with Tyrannosaurus coming after them. Like it's superhero, it's superheroics as a character development, um, as character development tools, which I love because it's so often the other way around. I'm going to try to find this line because it's my favorite line in the whole book. I know exactly the line you're yeah, talking it's about. It's so good. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you have Marvel Girl narrating and she becomes such a sympathetic character. So like Iceman's the child narrating first class. She's the teenager narrating uh, season one. And oh man, it it kind of bring it kind of brings you back to the the crazy everything matters so much but everything is also incredible and full of opportunity feel of being a teenager the x-men and really teenager teenage superheroes in general tend to get written as like teenagers written through the filter of adults like they're saved by the bell teenagers no teenagers actually ever talk that way and thank god well and there are there are exceptions and again this is another McKelvey book um young avengers is an exception and x-men season one is definitely an exception okay here's the line um 
We've been awake for two days. I'm sorry I can't throw a dinosaur for you. If I had a dime for every time I, uh, you and I said that to each other, Rachel. Yeah, this is this is this is definitely something that's come up repeatedly over the course of our marriage. <laughs> this is, that kind of negotiation is, is part of a healthy relationship. Any healthy relationship, literally any healthy relationship. Talk about dinosaur throwing. About the same time you talk about like protection and whether you want a kid. So season one, it basically covers the first, I don't know, maybe four or five issues with uh, some changes. Eight. The first eight issues. Oh, the, hey, there we go. The first eight issues of the original Silver Age X-Men. But yeah, it's such a nice, fresh take on it. Like you see the Beast leaving the team when he gets really disillusioned by humanity uh, hating mutants so much. You learn about the relationship between Xavier and Magneto. You see the Brotherhood. You see even Eunice the Untouchable. But it all feels new and fresh and exciting and not at all dated. Like of these three books, season one is the one that doesn't feel remotely dated. And it's all interwoven. Um, so the, all three of these series are structurally really different, and all three of them pull from different different eras and different chapters. So First Class is very episodic, um, and it's pulling from all over the Silver Age and all over the Hidden Years. Uh, Children of the Atom is a limited series. It's very sequential, and it's pulling mostly from the, the secret origin backstories. Um, X-Men Season 1 is a graphic novel and it's not the kind of graphic novel that's basically a bunch of issues lumped together like it's um there are a lot of what's told is told in flashbacks and cutbacks and forth and it's a really seamless narrative um and it pulls again from those 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 first eight issues of the silver age and it's so good it uses them so well it integrates them so well and it takes those stories which were basically about a bunch of teenagers fighting some cool stuff and makes the fighting of the fighting cool stuff serve the development of these characters and this team and the dynamic. One of my favorite ways that it does that is you see Cyclops, he, you know, he's constantly freaking out about uh, not not having enough control over his powers, not being able to lead the team well enough. And he starts doing this thing where he's in the danger room with simulations of the other X-Men, you know, basically like directing them around, trying to become a better leader without having to rely on actual people in the training to become a better leader. And without having to put them at risk. Right. And um, Bobby Iceman shows up and figures out what's going on and he's Bobby always just wants a place to belong. Like that's something I really sympathize with 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 Bobby Drake. And he's like, you know, I'll I'll be your ice man, Scott. I'll I'll do whatever you say. And it's just this beautiful like I mean I I, I teared up on the plane. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie there. It's um it just cuts to the the core of who these characters are. And really, I think the whole reason we're doing this episode, why these characters have such appeal, even when their original forms were not terribly interesting, why we keep coming back to these five characters. Now, speaking of these five characters, X-Men Season 1 has something that the other two don't, which is that it has not directly but obliquely become canon. Recently, in the current X-Men series, Hank McCoy, for complicated reasons that we will explain at length over the course of the next several years, oh boy. decided to go back in time, snatch the first five X-Men as teenagers, and bring them back up to the future. And the versions that he grabs are essentially the season one versions. They're written very similarly. Um, it's it, yeah, I think I think it was actually officially mentioned that it's it's basically those versions, and that's really important because it's in the it's in the current timeline that you get to really see them develop. And Jean is the center of that that story. Um, younger younger Jean, adult Jean is is currently dead. Um, although. The, yeah, we're, we're not going to talk about the adult genes situations right now. <laughs> that would be an entire other multiple. We episode. thought about using that for the cold open, and then we realized it would have to be almost five minutes long. So, um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So but so Gene is central, and Gene is um, 
Jean is is kidnapped by by aliens who want to put her on trial for what will be the future crimes of her adult self. Just bear with us. We'll get to that. Um, in 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 the time that has passed between when she was pulled from the past and when the series t- and when she currently is in the present. Um, as a result of that, as a result of getting pulled through time, um, her powers change pretty significantly, and the way she relates to them changes pretty significantly, and she comes into her own in a way that she really never had the chance to do within the Silver Age. And as a result, there's now a Jean Grey floating around the Marvel Universe who is really, really different from any Jean Grey we've ever seen. And I think in a lot of ways, the Jean Grey we should have had to begin with. Right. Like if, you know, the original Silver Age Jean didn't have a lot going on, the one in season one, like this is what we all loved about Jean that in a way we all constructed in our minds of what we wanted her to be and what she was like in the 80s and 90s. Like this is that Jean. This is the best... I'm going to go ahead and say this is the best Jean Grey has ever been written. I I think you're absolutely right. So, yeah, we have our three Silver Age retellings. There are some others, but these are the ones we chose to focus on because we think it's they're the most interesting to discuss. They're Children. also the most self-contained, and they're also in print and, and, and findable. With that, like, sh- what should you read? Should you read the original Silver Age or these? Totally these. And, you know, I'm sure we've made our opinions on which are the best uh, clear over the course of the episode. The Silver Age is fun for, for nostalgia, but if you want... A really good encapsulated read in an afternoon feel of what the X-Men are, what they can be going into the modern era. Read X-Men season one. If you want awesome hijinks, superheroes, and the X-Men at their most fun and their most picaresque and their most adventure Read X-Men first class. And if you want to just sort of look at your the comics open in front of you and say, huh. Read Children of the Atom. <laughs> and once you've done that, you'll be ready for our next episode when we are going to be diving in to Giant Size X-Men number one, the first X-Book of what will eventually become the modern era. AKA when X-Men starts to get really good. Now though, read our questions. Okay, so here's our first one. Uh, this is from on Tumblr from Discord Inc. Do you think the X-Men work better when they're part of the larger Marvel Universe, or do they work better if you kind of isolate them? I ask, since I've always found it weird that the citizens of the Marvel Universe can fear and hate mutants, but, say, love Spider-Man when they have no idea if he could also be a mutant. First of all, that's a great point. That's something that came up, actually, in another question from Joseph Ryan Hill on Tumblr that was re- similar enough that we we didn't run both. But um, I think it really depends on the story and the writer. The X-Men are at their best in the larger Marvel Universe, I think. When they intersect with the larger Marvel Universe well, the X-Men are always still a little bit outside of it. They don't quite trust the Avengers. They don't quite trust the rest of the superhero community, and they definitely don't quite trust the rest of the world around them. And the the crossovers that work really well from here, the crossovers that really highlight that and do interesting things with it. Uh, yeah, there was a really good X-Men and Avengers crossover back in the 80s where basically Magneto's on trial and they're kind of on different sides of what they think should happen. And I think that exactly speaks to what you're saying. And that, that's a really good story for that reason. Mm-hmm. I think I think a good example of that, not done nearly as well as Avengers versus X-Men, where you see some of that, but it feels more like let's put everyone in a jar and shake it till they fight. That's a really vivid mental image. And I highly recommend picturing that as uh, clearly as you can. Can we do a t-shirt of that? Theoretically. Although some some of the lead up stories to that, the um the Utopia storyline, the Dark X Men, uh, Dark Reign era, actually really nails that earlier feel too mm-hmm. really well. So our next question is from Rustin H. Wright on our blog who asks, Iceman, 
actual player or unacknowledged mascot? Oh, man. Okay, so I'm really biased. Uh, As mentioned before, I'm definitely an Iceman fan. Um, But I think what makes the character interesting is that line, is that, you know, we have uh, Jean Grey doing crazy Phoenix stuff and Cyclops being all angsty and Magneto having all this symbolic weight. And you have Iceman, and he's a little bit more removed. He's like, this is my family. I love these guys. I love this life. But you get the impression he's not, you know, staying up all night, like, uh, screaming, no, at the sky. And, uh, I mean, Or I that guess, if he is, it has more to do with bad movies. That's entirely reasonable. Manos the Hands of Fate or something. <laughs> so, uh, he's sort of the Troy Barnes of the X-Men. You know, he, he kind of is. He's a little bit goofy. He's a little bit immature, or a lot immature, depending on which version you're reading. But, you know, I don't think it would feel like the X-Men without him. And not just, like, without him present, but without him as a part of the team. Without him occasionally swooping in to, to save the day. And without him kind of reminding the X-Men that, hey, we're all just people. As crazy as our lives get, we're all just people. Something that's come up and that we've noticed before in superhero teams, especially highly powered ones is that there's often a character who's sort of coded as a ki- the kid or the happy-go-lucky one, but who functionally is the team's, um, what, what grounds the team in their humanity. Justice League Unlimited, which is one of my very, very favorite animated series, and basically my DC universe, does that beautifully with Wally West as the Flash. Um, there's, there's, a, there's an episode that actually, or a, a couple episodes that basically revolve around that, that he is functionally the humanity of the team. And I think that's what Bobby is in the X-Men at least in this group, um, he is the best adjusted of them. He's the one who has kind of a personality and a life and a self that his powers are only tangential to. Like he would, he could stop being able to manipulate ice and he'd still basically be the same person in a way that I don't think any of the others would. Absolutely. Now, Bobby goes through a great deal of character development over the years, mostly having to do with unrealized potential, you know, being an Omega-level mutant, which is the most powerful type of mutant in, in yeah, continuity. Yeah, he's the second most powerful of the original five. After Gene, absolutely. Um, and so later on, I think that this question becomes much clearer, like he's absolutely a team member, there's a lot going on with him. Yeah. But even this early on, I think he's he is a core part of the X-Men as much as any of the rest of them are. So we have another question. This is from um, Crooked Knight, which I, uh, on Twitter it looks like. Uh, how much of the Silver Age needs revisiting? How much has to happen before it's time for the giant size era? All right, we covered a little bit of th- we we covered most of this in the rest of this episode, but I want to do a brief recap of the things you should know before you go into giant size number one. The cursory answer to that is technically nothing. You can start there; they'll give you everything you need from context. But here's the stuff that I would carry from the Sil- Silver Age, and that's going to make it a little easier. Professor X is a wealthy dude who is a telepath, and he decided to start a team called the X-Men by collecting teenage mutants. These are kids who are born with or developed around puberty, genetic mutations giving them superpowers. They include Jean Grey, a telekinetic who later developed telepathy. Scott Summers, Cyclops, who um, shoots force beams out of his eyes, can't control them, and and is, is the de facto leader of the team. Um, Warren Worthington, uh, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, Kenneth. Um, Angel, who has big feathery white wings and can fly. He's a rich. He's super rich. He's um, pretty happy-go-lucky. Um, Bobby Drake, who is a well-adjusted human being um, and can do ice stuff. And Hank McCoy, Beast, who um, is smart. Uh, dexterous and very strong later on and we didn't really talk about these guys in detail but they show up during the silver age we meet alex summers havoc who's scott's little brother and shoots uh, plasma bursts out of his chest or whole body and wears a very silly hat 
and Lorna Dane, who was originally introduced as, but then later retconned to not be, but then later, later retconned to be, but you don't need to know that. Magneto's daughter, she can do magnet stuff. So hearing you describe everyone with like a little uh, brief intro kind of reminds me of the Ninja Turtles theme song. And so now I really want a sort of cheesy 80s guitar th- guitar thing where it tells you about each of the characters or possibly a rap of some sort. Yeah, okay. This is your challenge for this week, listeners. Write us an original X-Men intro rap. This would be amazing. Yeah. doesn't have to be a rap. I like guitars better, but you know, do what you want to. You know, you could actually just switch them around. You could, you could. You really pretty much could. <laughs> so, um, anyway. Angel is a party dude, et cetera. <laughs> So those are our questions for this week. Uh, what else do we have to talk about before we close? Well, um, this is not actually directly Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men related. I am going to take a rare moment and talk about another project that I'm working on. I'm a writer and editor. Um, I write comics. I'm also a pop culture journalist. I write about comics a lot. And in the last few weeks, there have been a lot of issues with comics and the comics community and identity politics and harassment. And... I got really frustrated with those, and I started a project about a week ago called We Are Comics. And the idea of it is basically to put a face on comics that's maybe not the one that we see all the time, to actually, you know, get people to talk about what brought them to comics, to show themselves as fans of comics, and to really make a stand for comics as an inclusive culture. The comics industry that I've been part of and that I've seen in the comics community I've been part of isn't mostly straight white dudes between 18 and 49. It is incredibly diverse and incredibly vibrant, And really, it always has been. There has not been a time when there weren't women making comics. There's not been a time when there weren't people of color making comics and reading comics and buying comics and central to that. And comics is a visual medium. I wanted to make a visual presentation of that. If you go to wearecomics.tumblr.com, you can see a lot of those pictures. You can submit one. You can read a little bit more about the project. But I wanted to bring that up because that's something that for both of us, um, X-Men's been kind of central to in terms of the relationship between comics and diversity and also in terms of just being something that's been central to us as people and as a couple. Absolutely. So yes, please definitely check that out. And, of course, you can find us at rachelandmiles.com, where you can also see some of the uh, panels and slash screencaps that we put together after each episode. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. Listen to us and uh, recommend us and review us on all of those. And buy our t-shirts now. Yes, indeed. Um, thanks again to Chris Sims for filling in for me last time when I was busy slinging comics at a show. To Dylan Todd, who designed our awesome, awesome Magneto Made Some Valid Points t-shirt. And as always, to Bobby Roberts for producing. We'll see you next week in Giant Sized X-Men number one.